of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 158 and we take an epic regional tour into the Limpopo River region to meet with the vendor and other groups of folks who hail from the province we now call Limpopo. Thanks to the listener Mushi for the suggestion. By the mid-15th century, Shona-speaking immigrants from Zimbabwe settled across the Limpopo River and interacted with the local Sutu inhabitants. As a result of this interaction, Shona and Sutu led to what is now regarded as a common Venda identity, and that was by the mid-16th century. Venda-speaking people lived mainly in the Sotbansberg area and southern Zimbabwe, but they also once lived in southwestern Mozambique and northeastern Botswana. Venda grammar and phonology is similar to Shona, particularly western Shona and Venda vocabulary has its greatest equivalent in Sutu. Phonology is the branch of linguistics that deals with systems of sounds within a language or between different languages. According to most ethnographers, it is not only the vendor language, but also certain customs, such as the Domba pre-marital school, that distinguish them from surrounding Shona, Sututswana and Tsonga communities. First, a quick refresh. We heard in one of the earlier podcasts about the Mapungubwe kingdom, which lasted until the 13th century, following which Shona-speaking peoples moved southwards into the Sotpansberg region over the centuries. Archaeologists have established that by the 14th century, or the late Mapungubwe period, what is known as the Moloko, the early post-kingdoms emerged in northern Transvaal. This is where the forebears of the Venda come in. Zimbabwean ceramics help a lot here. They were produced by Shona speakers and their 14th century distribution demarcated the Shona trading empire centered around Great Zimbabwe. The rulers at Great Zimbabwe controlled most of the country between the Limpopo and Zambezi rivers until smaller trading states broke away in the 15th century. I've covered this in great detail in the episodes 5, 6 and 7 if you want to refresh your memories. We also know that trade between these early kingdoms and the east coast was established. Goods like gold and ivory, copper, they were traded with Arab and Portuguese merchants. The Venda were directly impacted by this trade, along with another unique group called the Lemba, who are directly related to ancestors who actually traded all the way from Yemen in the Middle East. More about them in a few minutes. As you know, ceramics help us piece together the past more effectively. The period of Shona and Suta interaction eventually evolved into more than a mere overlap of these ceramic styles because, for the first time, different stylistic elements appeared on the same pots. A freshly minted culture was emerging, the proto-vendor. The blending of the ceramic styles which led to this new style, the blending of Kami, Maloko and Tavachena pottery, turned into a new form. By the early 16th century, what was called Lataba pottery style emerged, normally decorated with an incisive band of cross-hatching or counter-hatched triangles on the shoulder of a pot, along with a distinctive graphite burnish. These Lataba pots were unearthed in what was the eastern Transvaal and into Limpopo, as it's now known. It is interesting that these ceramics are still produced today. These Lataba pots and ceramics are made by the Venda, the Tsonga and the I mean, Debele, but anthropologists and historians believe the style itself is distinctly Venda in character. These mergings and mixings are what created the Venda language, which is basically an amalgamation of Shona and Sutu. This new proto-language was being spoken before the unification of the Venda people under Toyo Eendu, one of the grandfathers of the Venda people. There's quite a bit of debate about exactly which years demarcated his reign. 
What is not debated is what effect the arrival of a people called the Singo had, who had separated from the Rosvi Empire, which I covered in episodes 5 and 6. The Singo went south somewhere around the late 1680s. A large settlement of Zata has been well studied in relation to this movement, so we know quite a bit about what was going on. Most agree that Tata was the first Singo village in the Sotpansberg, and although it looks like earlier Zimbabwean settlements, it has different features. It's missing the long arcs of rock walls, for example. Instead, it has shorter patches of stacked walls of round boulders and angular rocks set on edge. Also different from the earlier Zimbabwean settlements, the Zata settlements occur in open valleys on both sides of the Sotpansberg Mountains, whereas the Zimbabwean settlements tended to be built on hilltops. Shortly after this system emerged, somewhere in the late 1600s to early 1700s, two others called the Chiruluni and the Chitemi became the regional centres south of the Sotmansberg. After the 17th century Singo conquest, the Chivula dynasty of the Tuamamba established a marriage alliance which helped forge a cultural togetherness. And a few decades later, there was a disagreement, and the Chivula moved their capital to Mavambo, just east of Sotpansberg. The western end of this slice of mountain is called Taba Yamunyo, or Place of Salt, after an actual salt pan found there. It's not clear whether the Chivula dynasty had first moved east when the singer arrived and then back again, but what is indisputable is it was from Mavambo that the reigning Chivula sent the first machete king to Liokwe Hill near the Limpopo River. More about the machete in a minute. The western edge of the Sotpansberg was dominated by the Birwa people who occupied hill terraces. They're a bit of a mystery. Traditionally, they are said to have originated in the east near present-day Zanin and then moved from there westwards to Tayatswala, establishing a new small state west of the Blobach. Archaeologists excavating near Tayatswala yielded Lataba pottery from a Birwa settlement that incorporated kind of rudimentary stone walling built between boulders at the back. A few settlements in the Mapangubwe area can be identified as probably Birwa because of similar evidence. According to recorded traditions, various Sututswana married into Birwa families in the Mapungubwe area. In this regard, we recorded a few settlements with social organizations that are regarded as mixed 19th century Sututswana. Thus, there was a multi-ethnic community in the Limpopo Valley at the time of Masheti I, who came to power around the early 1800s. Eventually, the collapse of the Singo trading centers around Zata coincided, we believe, with the major reorientation of trade away from Safala and Inhamban on the East African coast to Delagoa Bay. That was between the 18th and 19th centuries. This fragmentation heralded a period of conflict, and these valley settlements gave way pretty quickly to terraced villages and towns on hilltops. Vendor chiefs were now fighting each other as well as fighting off Nguni and Sutu raiders. According to oral tradition, the Chivula Venda headquarters at this time was located near the salt pan at the western edge of the Sotpansberg I mentioned a minute ago. A son of Chief Chivula, called Ralutapi, was sent to the Limpopo as a district leader sometime in the 1830s. There he found a Berwa headman under a Kalanga chief living at Leokwe Hill, a well-known site excavated by archaeologists. I mention all these people because it goes to show just how mercurial and dynamic the movement of the people was, and also it wasn't a simple north-south migration. The Venda Kingdom pretty much stretched from the Limpopo River in the north 
to the Olifants and Inguenya River or Crocodile River in the south. But by the time Louis Trichard rode through their land in 1836, the great Venda Empire had almost vanished, torn up by external threats, damaged by the Amandebele and even Amazulu raiders. Before the Venda arrived in this region south of the Limpopo, the Ngoma people lived there, and it is said the first Venda king to lead his people south was Toyo Eandu, or Elephant Head. Thus the town of Toyondu of today, which is actually quite a recent settlement. Toyondu became the capital of the former Bantustan of Venda, while Zanani is the traditional capital of Venda and the home of the Bavenda kings. Back in the early 1800s, the Kalanga people to the north were subjects of Toyondu, and the Sutu-speaking people to the south also recognized him as their sovereign. The Limpopo River formed and still forms a political boundary. There were known Venda homesteads on the north side of the river, the best known stands on Mamagua Hill, a short distance from the Mutlutsi and Limpopo River confluence. A second is located on the sandstone ridge at the confluence of these two rivers itself, inside modern-day Botswana, while opposite the site is another homestead inside what is South Africa. A fourth can be found overlooking a stream a few kilometers away. So all four roughly coursed walls incorporated loopholes in the residential areas and yielded Lataba pottery, maize grindstones, and 19th century glass, such as blue hexagonal and blue annular beads. Using both oral tradition and archaeological evidence, it's clear that part of the territory known as Venda included land inside Botswana, but which the people of the time regarded as separate chiefdoms from the three inside South Africa. Other Venda villages were built along the Limpopo River inside Zimbabwe, and we know too they belonged to separate chiefdoms. But by the 1830s, the Venda ruling chiefs could all trace their origins to their grandfather, Toyo Ndu. That means he could not have been around much earlier than the last years of the 18th century. Of course, the central and western Haarfeld had been destabilized by a general conflict between Tswana societies since the mid-18th century. When the Amandabeli invaded in the late 1820s and early 1830s, Mzilikatsi's actions led to the physical displacement of thousands of Sutu and Tswana-speaking communities, while the Amazulu were also raiding the southern Venda reaches. Then the Fuhr Trekkers raided too, further complicating the Venda political and social systems. The Trekkers and the local African chiefs sometimes ganged up on competitors, and often it was the power of the African chief that dictated this relationship, at least at first. Thus the Venda chiefdoms, who worked with the Trekkers earlier, were going to fight the Boers in a succession of battles, eventually, all the way through to the 20th century. The Voortrekkers' earliest settlements here was set up in 1836 in the Sertbansberg, north of where the town of Petersburg was to be located in a few years. Two groups under Boer leaders Hans van Rensburg and Louis Trichard visited the Sertbansberg, but relations between the two were tense and they moved off in opposite directions after a major disagreement. Trichard's group settled near Saltpans in the Sertbansberg for a year before moving to Delagoa Bay, while Lang Hans van Rensburg was eventually killed in July 1836, when almost his entire family group of 51 were massacred by an impi of Manukozi near Inambain in Mozambique. Only two of his children were spared as a result of an intervention by a Zulu chief. The second group who could be found in this territory are the Lemba. They remain one of the self-defining groups of the region who have a stunning origin story. I'm going to tread quite carefully here because there's science and then there's oral tradition. As you'll hear, 
The Lemba believe they are related to the lost tribes of Israel and have recently demanded that they be recognized as such. The idea of the Lemba as an ethnic group is complicated. They are known as South Africa's black Jews. As you'll hear, part of their origin is Middle Eastern. The big debate is whether they originated from Arab traders over the millennia or were part of the lost tribes of Israel expelled by the Assyrians in 723 BC. When the first Europeans met the Lemba in the early 1800s, they were stunned by their Middle Eastern and African mixed features. Their name itself is shrouded in mystery. It's been suggested that the phrase Lemba originates from Chilemba, which is a Swahili word meaning turban. So Lemba, loosely translated, means those who wear turbans. But there's another theory, that the word Lemba originates from Lembi, a term which occurs in a number of northeastern Bantu languages, meaning a non-African or a respected foreigner. Then there's another. The name Varemba could mean people who refuse to eat with others because the Lemba do not eat pork. The Lemba themselves prefer the name Mwenye and call themselves Sena or Sana in reference to their city of origin in Yemen. Sena is thought to be the ancient town of Sana, which is located on the eastern side of the Hadramaut Valley in Yemen. And in Lemba tradition, Sena has been the semi-mythical status origin city. Sena, officially known as Sana, actually still exists, but the ancient town lies abandoned in Yemen and is not to be confused with the capital of Yemen, Sana'a, which is on the other side of that war-wracked country. According to Lemba oral tradition, their male ancestors migrated to Southeast Africa in order to trade in gold. One group settled in Tanzania and Kenya, building their lives there, while others settled in Malawi, where their descendants still live today. And given the DNA research I'll get to in a minute, they intermarried with African women for over a thousand years. Over time, they also settled in Mozambique and migrated to Zimbabwe and then South Africa. Lemba people say it was their ancestors who built Great Zimbabwe, but historians believe it's more likely they were workers on the architectural projects, but weren't solely responsible for its construction. It was the ancestors of the Shona who built that remarkable structure. Many pre-modern Lemba beliefs and practices can be tentatively linked to Semitic religions. So let's go over the reasons why these mysterious folks believe they're Jewish. Well, first off, they observe Shabbat, which is Judaism's day of rest on the seventh day of the week, Saturday. They praise Mwali, one of their deities, for looking after them on their migrations. And they identify themselves as part of the chosen people of Israel. They don't eat pork and other beasts which are forbidden by the Torah and they can't eat certain other combinations of foods in the Jewish tradition while also practicing ritual animal slaughter and preparation of meat in a Middle Eastern way. They also practice male circumcision, but so do many others in Southern Africa, so that's not regarded as proof of a Semitic origin. The Lemba are discouraged from marrying non-Lemba and according to anthropologist Machtel Larue, the Lemba have a rite of sacrifice called the Pesah which is similar to the Jewish Pesach, or Passover. The interesting aspect about all of this is that many of these pastimes are also common to Muslims. Then consider the Lemba clan names like Sadiki, Hassani, Hamisi, Haji, Bakali, Sharifo, and Saidi, all are Semitic in origin. So by the 19th century, they were an esteemed group living around the Sotpansberg and respected because they were expert metal workers and miners. The big issue is this. 
While their narrative and origin story links them to the Middle East and Jewish religions, the DNA indicates they're most likely descended from Arab traders, with a confirmed link to Yemen. In the early 2000s, a team from the Centre for Genetic Anthropology at University College London collected DNA samples from Bantu, Yemeni and Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews to compare the similarity that existed between each of these groups and the Lemba. Just for the record, the more similar the Y chromosome, the more individuals are closely related because it means they likely have a common paternal ancestor. As a consequence, one can establish links between people. Other studies conducted between 1996 and 2005 show that the Y chromosomes, the male line, are most likely linked to Arab traders, who are known to have established long-distance networks that stretch thousands of kilometers along the rim of the Indian Ocean, from Safala in the south to the Red Sea in the north, and beyond to Hadramut in India, and even to China from around 900 AD. But the scientists found significant similarities between the markers of the Lemba and the markers of the men of the Hadramaut in Yemen. And here the plot thickens because the University College London study revealed that a substantial number of Lemba men carry a particular haplotype of the Y chromosome, which is known as the Cohen modal haplotype, as well as a Y DNA haplotype J, which is found in some Jewish people, as well as other populations who live across the Middle East and Arabia. There's one more striking fact. The Lemba clan called the Buba, who had a leadership role in the oral tradition, were supposed to have led their ancestors out of Israel. And these Buba descendants have a high incidence of the Cohen modal haplotype Y chromosome that appears to be a signature of Jewish ancestry. What this study shows is that the Lemba, and more specifically some members of the Buba subclan, seem to have an ancestral connection to Judaic populations. Like an oral history, but written in the letters of their DNA, the Lemba Y chromosome hands from father to son a living record of their past. On the X chromosome side, it's a completely different picture. There is no sign of Semitic female contribution to the Lemba gene pool, further reinforcing the likelihood that the people are descended from male Middle Eastern traders and from the history of East and Southern Africa, most likely to be Muslim and perhaps a sprinkling of Jews who married African women over the centuries to create the Lemba people. It's important that we see this part of South Africa, the region adjacent to the Limpopo, as historically tied to East African trade systems. People moved around here for 2,000 years. Naturally, the contacts are deep, the DNA mixed, the story enchanting and beguiling. So after this update on the latest machinations on the felt stretching from the south of the Sotpansberg and across the Limpopo, it's time to halt our exploration of Southern African history for this episode. Next, we'll tour the Orange River region in the early 1840s and trek to the Basutu King Moshweshwe's mountain retreat. His people are now being squeezed by the Griqua, the Batlokwa, and the Boers, amongst others. Coming up the road towards him too, were the British. If you could rate the podcast on iTunes or any of your favorite platforms, that helps elevate the visibility. And you can head off to desmondlatham.blog, where I'm going to load an update about this episode. You can email me from there. Until next... Nasali Zwavuti. Thank you.